Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Their refusal to use CS gas on these violent domestic terrorists uh, is the reason why they didn't want to come out. So we pressured them to go ahead and now they're going to be able to use the CS gas tomorrow. And I guarantee you that they're not going to use it on us. Oh, they're because gonna be we are going to come, clowns. we're going to come in peace and uh, we're not going to have a problem. On the one hand, you had Joe Biden, who looked into the camera, who spoke to the American people continuously. And then you had Donald Trump, who... Um, Make sure you, in fact, let people know he doesn't you're a senator. I'm not going to answer the question Why because, you answer that because question? the question you is... The question is... The question left. Will you who shut is up, man? Listen. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. No, Trump at his self-immolation sepsis event on Tuesday did not disavow white supremacy. What a jerk. Why won't he disavow fascism? Why won't he condemn those mean, murderous racists? Please, Mr. President, would you mildly suggest that Nazis haven't made exemplary ideological choices? I am pleading with you. Okay, Mr. President, just shake your head slightly no. And like, you can kind of lean into a tremor and we will call your racism a scurrilous rumor. Just say kind of no. But Trump has not stuttered. He won't damn the Proud Boys to hell. He won't throw their AirPods out the car window or wrap their knuckles with a ruler because he likes them. They're his people. So what I wish someone would ask him is not to condemn white supremacists, but why he likes them so much. Forget school marmishly asking Trump to condemn anything. Trump should be asked directly if he'll commit to praising white supremacy. See, I call people who praise things people of praise. I know everyone thinks they could jujitsu Donald Trump better than that weird Fox News moderator, and I'm no exception. But here are my actual questions for the President of the United States. And the best thing about them is they're not designed to elicit some kabuki speech act to put in one column or another. I really want answers. All right, here goes. Mr. President, you have many supporters among neo-fascists, like the great brown shirts of history. The Proud Boys have served as loyal bodyguards to the far right and provided security at your events. They also often clash with the leftist protesters you disdain. What do you most admire about these groups? Oh, here's another one. QAnon adherents, like the Proud Boys, see you as their hero. Aside from giving them marching orders like standby, how best do you think you can be a role model to these groups and provide the leadership they need? And finally, I don't want to drone on about that very fine people line. I'm not trying to play gotcha here, Mr. President, but I do want you to get to the fineness of one of the two sides, the unite the right people and those proud boys who marched with them. What do you find? especially fine about them. 
Because, man, when Trump is riling up the Proud Boy brown shirts, the Proud Boys already play bodyguard to wingnut show folk, including Milo Yiannopoulos, he's surely got some hard eyes for his chosen paramilitary. The big simian hairiness, the cartoon ammo belts, the bunk commitments to manliness and Western culture, where culture means the Hells Angels and the SS. Maybe... Donald Trump. These guys could be your proxies in some kind of cuck fantasy where a Black Lives Matter protester grabs Ivanka by the hair and, oh God. Okay, Godwin's law no longer obtains, and I know that. But when you mention cuck porn, let's just say you've lost. Okay, I'm literally going insane. And my only way back to sanity is my esteemed guest. She's Nicole Hemmer, a historian and podcaster, currently a scholar with the Obama presidency, Oral History Project at Columbia University. And guess what? Someone as esteemed and decorous as Nicole Hammer is going to talk about cucks. And she knows every piece of the secret decoder ring Proud Boy language and how and why it's deployed and how truly, truly the cuck porn stuff is pretty central to all this. I take my cues from her when it comes to how scared we should be when the president rouses the Proud Boys to stand at attention and await instructions from their commander-in-chief. Nicole, welcome back to Trumpcast. Thank you so much for having me, Virginia. I want to just blow past our emotions about the debate Tuesday night. Just We're just going to move past any <laughs> human feeling and response and flinch reflex and just go straight to five words. Stand back and stand by Trump's words very explicitly to the Proud Boys. Tell us about the Proud Boys and tell us about what you think Trump meant with those words. So the Proud Boys are a violent far-right street gang. They have been active since 2016. They were founded by Gavin McInnes, who was one of the co-founders of Vice Media. And it was originally established as a kind of a fight club that was about weird, very physical masculinity. There was some racism shot through it. There was some white supremacy shot through it. Um, There was a a kind of a stew of far-right ideology behind the, the Proud Boys. And when Donald Trump said, stand back and stand by, he actually made pretty clear what he meant with his next sentence, because he then said, somebody needs to do something about Antifa and the left. And that's precisely what Proud Boys have seen as their kind of job over the last four years, is to go out there and be the arm of enforcement for Trump's calls to beat up protesters, to beat up Antifa, to beat up the left. That's what they've been doing. There's a particular relationship that this brings to mind for, you know, since Mike Godwin said Godwin's law no longer obtains, that it's no longer wrong to compare anyone to Nazis. Let's just liberate ourselves to compare this dynamic between Trump and, say, the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or other other far-right street gangs, as you say, to Hitler's relationship with the paramilitary originally the brown shirts and then the SS. So that there are always these groups that are kind of rent-a-cops or something, or they do security. I know the Proud Boys did security and had done bodyguard work for Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter, and then spend time, you know, just what they say is we're just manning the door here. We're just making sure things don't get out of hand. But then there's an element of drinking in it. And then they look very, chip on their shoulder about if there is some kind of fight, they're quick to put it down or some kind of, 
um, rebellion and they give dirty looks to people and they menace people and they intimidate people. And then this becomes a kind of paramilitary. But it's a very structured relationship. What's strange is that they seem like a spontaneous street gang on the one hand, and on the other, they seem to be taking their orders pretty directly from really important show folk in the far right, including Ann Coulter and, and now Donald Trump. Talk us through how that might work. Sure. So there's actually a kind of divide in far-right groups like these militias and street gangs. There are some who position themselves as opposed to the government and and that particular kind of libertarianism where they they see themselves at war with law enforcement and with um, government organizations. And then you have these groups that have been particularly organized during the Trump administration that see themselves as an arm of the government, um, enforcing the will of Donald Trump, seeing themselves as an extension of the police and law enforcement. And that's really where a group like the Proud Boys fall. They are a structured street gang. It's easy to see that as kind of a spontaneous thing, but they have rituals, they have uniforms, like they are an organized gang, but they do have relationships with people like like Roger Stone even, right? The the Proud Boys have relationships with people in the government um, and they're being encouraged by people like Donald Trump. And again, this is something that goes, you know, it's not a 2020 phenomenon. It goes back to 2016 when Donald Trump was calling on his supporters to beat up protesters. This is just a formalized version of that. Yeah, I think sometimes during the debate on Tuesday, he, you know, when I went back and looked at the transcript, Chris Wallace chased him down to say, what is he actually urging his, quote, people to do? What is he urging his supporters to do? Because he kept saying, I urge my people, I urge my supporters. And Wallace kept trying to interrupt him and ask, what are you, what exactly? And he, and Trump kept kind of backing off that and also kind of filling it out. And then finally, he said, someone has to do something about Antifa and the left to the Proud Boys. But this thing that, what is he actually asking people to do? How state-sponsored or not state-sponsored are these kind of paramilitary activities. I think we're trying to get that message from Trump when he's in a public place. Like, what exactly do you want from these people and how coordinated is this? That was very interesting to see Wallace try to decode there, although fail to decode. So there were two different moments in the debate where this was happening, and and Donald Trump was asking for two different things. So when he was saying somebody needs to do something about Antifa and the left, he was basically calling for the kinds of things that we have seen in places like Kenosha, Wisconsin, or in Portland, Oregon, where you have these far-right groups who see themselves as an auxiliary of the police, who are maybe even willing to do things that law enforcement may not be willing to do, although law enforcement is actually willing to do quite a lot that is also not entirely legal. But you can see it, for instance, in things like, and this wasn't a proud boy, but in the case of Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin, who killed two protesters and injured another. How official is this? Well, we just found out this morning that the Department of Homeland Security was urging um, employees to talk about Rittenhouse as acting in self-defense. The president himself has said that Rittenhouse was acting in self-defense. So this idea that the government is going to support you if you commit violence against protesters, if you commit violence against Antifa, that makes it pretty official in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's the second 
thing that Donald Trump said or the second moment in the debate. And it came at the end where Chris Wallace was saying, will you urge your supporters not to engage in civil unrest around the election? Mm -hmm. And Trump, again, refuses to say that. Instead, he Mm -hmm. urges his supporters to go and, and monitor the polls. And so this is the other state-sanctioned, in a way, or president-sanctioned thing that he's calling upon his supporters, and particularly these militias and street gangs, to do, which is go to the polls. The election is being stolen, he says, so you have to get in there and do something about it. And that is almost certain to lead to things like voter intimidation, but also potentially violence at the polls. I'm glad you sort of pulled those two things apart because they seemed, yeah, when I listened to it through, you know, sometimes when you're watching a Trump rally or in this case, a debate, it washes over you so quickly that there are, and you always know that there's going to be a word or two or a cluster of phrase that's either going to be that QAnon, where I go, there you go (laughs) thing, you know, sort of um, these weird nostrums that are somehow in, uh, seem to be practically in another language. And that's what the, the stand back and, and, standby sounded like to me, like, what, wait, where's he talking from? And then the people are bad in Philadelphia or whatever. I don't have it exactly right, but they do bad things in Philadelphia. It's not always sunny in Philadelphia, whatever he said. Um, (laughs) I had to, you know, you just have to get your secret right-wing decoder ring and quickly go through all these things. And I, I do, I mean, for anyone who feels like they missed some of the most sinister notes in the debate, I do recommend going over the transcript because it's actually quite clear. There are as you say, two very specific things that he wants from his kind of riled up, not base, because we're not just talking about consumers of the Trump message, like just the red hats. We're talking about the people that provide security, the people that start fights, the people that mowed over Heather Heyer in Charlottesville. And he had pretty specific things he wanted from them. So yes, to recap, the first one is to fight Antifa wherever they rear their non-existent heads, <laughs> wherever they, wherever these left-wing skirmishes or supposedly left-wing incited skirmishes appear. And in particular, I think the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers say that's Portland. That's the ground zero of the so-called insurrection. So then getting this idea in our minds. And then this other thing about the poll which, you know, since I'm just going for it on likening these right-wing groups to brown shirts, you know, this kind of um, breathing down people's necks at the polls, this is not poll working, right? This is not the thing that ordinary Americans are being encouraged to do to keep more polls open. This is this kind of, you sort of breathe down people's necks. You do what the Hells Angels did when people would come to testify against them in court. Just sit all together in your special Fred Perry black and yellow shirts or whatever the Proud Boys wear and big beards and just give big people stink eye. And and you, you have on maybe ammo, maybe whatever, and you just scare the shit out of voters. Not so that there are anomalies in the voting, but so that people are too afraid to vote. Or, you know, just if you're if you're on the fence and you look over at your poll place and there are a lot of, you know, sc- very scary, big-looking right-wing men who are drunk and who want to fight, which is, you know, those are the prime directives, then you just don't go. You just don't vote that day. And that would be that would be something that um that these guys could do that is akin to what the brown shirts did did for Hitler. I mean, I think we're in a very specific we've now the elements of fascism have really coalesced. Yeah, I think we're going to look back at this summer in particular as a 
turning point moment. I mean, remember, it was not that long ago that Donald Trump was ordering federal law enforcement to attack peaceful protesters in front of the White House. I mean, that was a massive turning point moment. Yes, yes. Um, And now this idea that you're going to bring in unofficial paramilitary forces. And again, like, I think it's, it's worth saying that you were talking about how when Donald Trump makes these calls, it, it can kind of word salad and he's all over the place. But that kind of elliptical speaking style, which we saw in Charlottesville as well in 2017, oh, yeah. is a tactic, right? And one of the things that you have to follow is do people understand him? White power groups after Charlottesville celebrated when the president made his very fine people comment. And the yes. always celebrated. And these militia groups said they heard it loud and clear, stand back and stand by. We are ready to go. That's one of those danger signals. And and that elliptical speaking style allows him to say, oh, you know, I didn't mean it to the media. This is relevant to so many chapters in this long, desolate book that we've been reading for the last four years. I always think about Michael Cohen's testimony, Mr. Trump talks in code, right? He just always says he, that, and, and Cohen's example was, he'll say, isn't this the greatest tie you've ever seen? And what are you going to say to that? And this was a very specific legal issue for Cohen because had he been asked to lie, had perjury been suborned by Trump? And, you know, ultimately, Mueller didn't make that case because Trump had said something to Cohen like, wouldn't it be nice if the time frame of the Moscow deal was this other time frame, right? Now, is that asking him to lie? You know, Cohen said, I know the code, right? So that it, that was asking me to lie. That's something that you see with illicit activity. Right. Yes. And also, you know, I hope you can see your way clear to letting Mike Flynn go and then how Trump's sons defended him. He was just expressing a a hope. It was just a a warm hope in his mind. And then this thing, as you point out, he says, proud boys, stand. I think I have it. Something like proud boys, stand back and stand by word, word, word. And then something has to be done about Antifa and the left. Right. So where is he saying go beat up Antifa on the left? Not exactly, but something has to be done. I mean, he talks, every prosecutor has said it. He talks like a mob boss. And, and this is where you can really illuminate this, the, that when you talk to the right, and I get this a little bit from the David Duke podcast we had at Slate, often they're being told, no Sieg Heils for now. You know, just for now, don't carry the Nazi stuff. We're, we're, we're laying low for the time being, and then we'll be, you'll be able to flare up again. You know, this very specific, uh, you know, I didn't quite get this. Actually, I, I'm listening to another podcast about skinheads in Chicago, and that, you know, they want to carry the Nazi flag, but they're sort of told, carry the Confederate flag. You know, like, when they're training you, you know, you, that's the stand back, right? And then later, you'll be able to have this more florid demonstration. And so it's not chastening to be told, addressed directly and told, stand back. It is, it's just like, right, we got it. We're with you. And then we'll have this full wave in Portland. And then we'll be able to fly our true fascist colors. And all that code is something you're so familiar with from from your books. 
Yeah, it's something that you actually saw. I think a great example here is Charlottesville. Somebody like Richard Spencer had been steeped in power politics for years, and he latches on to the issue of this Confederate statue removal in Charlottesville because he sees it as a way of both mainstreaming his ideas and broadening his base in a way. Can he make common cause with these other right-wing groups and make a mm-hmm. space at the table for his white power politics? And that's the idea behind what was initially thought of as the Unite the Right rally, right? We're going to unite all of these different groups. Now, there were some groups, um, including eventually the Proud Boys, although there were Proud Boys there, but Gavin McInnes had told the Proud Boys not not to go to um, unite the right. But by the time that the rally actually happens, you really only have like the worst neo-Nazis and Klansmen left on the speaking slate. So it didn't actually manage to expand and unite these groups because other groups were like, ah, you know, if we're too associated with these kind of violent Nazis, Mm -hmm. we are going to lose legitimacy for our cause. So we're going to go over here. We're going to say, oh, no, we're not associated with that kind of political violence and Mm -hmm. attaching themselves more fully to Trumpian politics or more mainstream right wing politics in order to get more of a hearing for themselves. But those underlying ideas that they're super okay with Nazis and Nazi flags and the Klan that's all still there. It's just not surfaced because there's a political price to pay for it. Somehow it hit me in this recent podcast about Chicago skinheads, how much brain power goes into figuring out the codes. So I was just really surprised that there are some kids. So let's just imagine that we are, you know, there's a certain proportion of of adolescent boys at all times who feel disaffected and and who, you know, might turn to emo or punk or whatever, and some of them turned to Mein Kampf. And th- this was this kid in, in who's now out of the neo-Nazis, but he t- was one of those who was just really drawn to white power, really drawn to the clothes, really drawn to the metal-tipped boots, you know, particular discussion of the kind of, cl- of the, like, I didn't even know the names that he was saying of the kind of jacket he had to wear or whatever. But he just felt tough and strong and manly when he put it on. But he realized early on that he couldn't use the Nazi flag as much as he wanted to. And very specifically, even though he's in Chicago, no feeling for the South. No, he's told this is the more classy, plausible deniability option is to fly the Confederate flag. And it's just exactly to express the same thing, but with a little bit more code to it. And since he's all about these boots and this particular white nationalist, white power bands that have all different names and it's all kinds of punks signaling to each other with particular ways of wearing your rings or your clothes or your boots or getting your boots or saving up for your boots. That that all that semiotics becomes a huge part of the kind of coalescing of white identity. I mean, so much cosplay, as they say, I just don't think I knew the extent of it. Yeah. And it's something you, you again, we, we saw and started to decode in 2016, 2017, yeah. right? People in most mainstream political circles didn't know what 1488 meant. They didn't understand that Pepe, this cartoon frog, had any sort of other meaning. And so as journalists and activists have decoded these things and and spread public awareness of them, then new codes have popped up because that idea of plausible deniability is really important here. Um, It's the same thing that happens with the 
ironic defense, right? That mm. I'm just using it ironically. This is huge for the Proud Boys, right? That that their um, appeals to Nazism or their anti-Semitic sayings, that these are all just being done in irony to shock people. Um, and mm. again, that's the same idea that, oh, if you take this literally, if you see fascism here, well, you just don't get it. I guess that's why I'm very happy Mike Godwin suspended his law after Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. He said, I think he said on, on, you know, the law was that you, uh, you know, you lose an argument when you call someone a Nazi. And he said uh, in a very, you know, influential tweet in title case, for some reason, not all caps, not, (laughs) you know, whatever, something like, by all means, call these shitheads Nazis. And I think that that was in the plausible deniability days, sort of let's say pre-Charlottesville, where it was very important, you know, you could insult someone by calling them a racist, certainly not calling them a fascist, and that all that made you seem hysterical, and that they were like dropping little hints and needling, and then, you know, if you went so far as to blow a gasket and say, you're just a Nazi, then you had lost, and they got to retreat into, look, we just believe in, like David Duke, equal rights for white people or whatever, and men's rights, or those kind of reciprocal reverse racism kind of ideas. I'm glad that conversation is blunter now, because there was something crazy making when you knew the 14 words or, you know, some of those other codes, right? They're tedious also. And it's annoying that we have to figure them out. Right? Like, who cares? I mean, I remember when I was at the Times, I would sometimes have to write about some punk. They'd have like a, you know, long documentary on the er early days of punk. And I would panic because the chances that I would get something wrong were very high. You know, and if you said that someone was a socialist who really was more fascist, blah, like it could be a disaster and that someone was good, was, you know, influential who wasn't or something I got wrong, the CBGB scene versus some Northern England scene. And I just thought, I don't want to do this. I can make up a little magic codes about my games, too, and then make you figure them out. <laughs> I don't know. And I hate having to learn that 1488 stuff. And I hate having to learn the stupid QAnon stuff that we all are like, oh, they use their special hashtag. It gets them, it gets us into the state of mind that the they're in, which is like all the code reading, you know? It's like, it just seems so adolescent, punky, bleh. I want to keep it opaque. Yeah, I mean, these are both strategies, right? That it's tedious and time-consuming, but also that it's ridiculous. I mean, remember that yes. in order to be a second-degree proud boy, you have to endure a beating while shouting out the names of different serials. That's beyond adolescence. It's dumb. If you say that to people, they think of this group as just ridiculous. And being thought of as ridiculous is actually extremely helpful because then people don't see you as a serious, violent fighting force. And that has been a tactic. I mean, I mentioned Pepe the Frog, that same idea that like a cartoon frog means you're a Nazi um, is something that's actually a really effective way of shutting down the people who study this and understand that it's a symbology that actually means something much, much worse. A way of allowing a discourse to infiltrate common popular, you know, conversations. The Pepe is such a great example. I mean, you really keep your head with this stuff. And you also can somehow remember each one of them. I didn't even know this. Shout out the names of breakfast cereals. Yeah, it's 
there are four degrees to becoming a proud boy. You're the first degree okay. is to say you're a proud boy in public, um, to align okay. with your values publicly for whatever ridicule and shame you get. The second is to be beaten in, um, which is a common gang initiation tactic. Um, but while you're being beaten in, you have to shout out the names of five serials. Beaten um, in? Beaten Wait, in. Um, so like a, a crowd of proud boys will surround the initiate and beat them up until they have shouted out the five names of various breakfast cereals. Okay. It's uh, part of this idea that the proud boys are going to help you both express and control your masculinity. So when Gavin McInnes talks about this, he talks about it as um, learning to control the adrenaline in you, um, that you have to keep your head when you're involved in a violent confrontation in order to achieve your broader goals. <laughs> there are things involving not masturbating. Um, and then the third initiation level is to get a tattoo that says you're a proud boy. And the fourth initiation is to be physically harmed while acting as a proud boy. So if you get beat up by Antifa or something like that, then you get to be a, a fourth level proud boy. Wow. From what I understand also about Proud Boys, and this is to to sort of set aside the white supremacy a little bit, is that even though they boast about having all kinds of people in it being this diverse coalition that it, I think recently someone said it has black men, uh, Cubans, LGBT, or maybe just gay men and trans men even, which is interesting. It's all men. I mean, the thing that stands out is, you know, if there's a masculinist component of of the Proud Boys and similar groups that maybe gets under-theorized when we talk about them as white supremacist groups. I'm so glad that you brought this up because this is something that is so often overlooked when we talk about these groups as white supremacist groups. Yes, there are racist politics involved. There is also deeply patriarchal and often misogynist politics involved as well. I mean, the Proud Boys are as much a, quote unquote, men's rights activist group as they are just a far right, violent fascist group. This has been embedded in their politics from the very beginning. Gavin McInnes founded this group in part because he was deeply concerned, he said, about the feminization of culture, that Western civilization had basically been undone by all of these women and all of these people of color coming to power and sort of castrating white men, right? Mm -hmm. Making it so that they couldn't really be men. And so the Proud Boys was this space where they could come together and not only have male bonding, spending time together, social time with other men, but they could tap into this part of themselves that civilization had tried so hard to do away with, this violent mm -hmm. fighting part of themselves, which I think is such a critical component of what the Proud Boys are. Sometimes I think that, you know, if if women um, wanted, understandably, to create, quote, safe spaces for themselves to talk, this is an, a creation of unsafe spaces where you get, you you know, you get to put your giant booted feet up on the table. They're really devoted to drinking. I mean, as a recovering alcoholic myself, one of the things that stands out, and there are in Alcoholics Anonymous, there are a lot of men-only parts of getting sober. But when you define the group, sometimes McKinnis will call it a drinking club, just a drinking club. He doesn't say fight club. He doesn't talk about a men's group. So the other thing is to have this 
unruly world where the male id, which is blown up to cartoonish proportions that, you know, all they want to do is kind of fight and fuck or whatever, seems very key here. That it's wild. It's a bacchanal. It's an unsafe space where deliberately your mom is not there telling you to shave your big beard or put away your gun or stop burping. And all of that while it seems kind of um, silly and maybe even new in the sense that they'll say we hate woke people or Antifa or political correctness, has its history. I mean, you know, Hitler was enchanted by Aryans, enchanted by some total fantasy of the American Apache as expressing some true maleness that only when Teutons were in the forest, when they could, they were hunting, was masculinity so correctly expressed. And that all kinds of groups, especially women, but also, in that case, Jews, who embody nothing so small, like something as big as something like civilization, education, law, accounting, goes all the way to the banks, goes to proper dress, you know, that there might be some kind of way that you could just strip off your clothes with your big hairy chest and just beat up another person the way that you God intended. But to have this codified and turned into a, quote, movement, which has been, you know, kind of the the stress on civilization all along is a conversation between barbarism and civilization, or the id and the superego, or the base and the superstructure. I mean, this is all ideology in some, in some ways, and it is amazing to see it recodified. Now, you've written something about the notion of the cuck, which creates a kind of triangulation that brings in the masculinism, the toxic kind of patriarchy, and the white supremacy, which (laughs) I love your way of explaining it because you never freak out. You just describe in very patient detail this kind of pornographic image. So take it away. Sure. So the cuck is probably the purest distillation of the kinds of anxieties McInnes and the Proud Boys are talking about or that fuel their organization. So cuckold porn, cuck porn, um, it's a it's a genre of pornography in which a white man sits by while his partner, a white woman, has sex with a black man. And they're clearly just from that that situation of sexual humiliation, a lot of gender and racial dynamics going on here that the white man is being humiliated by white women and by black men. And so if he is not going to stand up for himself against those two forces, then he is the cuck who is sitting over in the corner watching all of this happen. And that Mm. is extended out from the bedroom to the world at large, to civilization at at large, that white men have been cuckolded by anti-racism, by feminism, all of these things, and they have to fight back against those forces. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. 
ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. I think one time before the 2016 election, I saw a map, I should look back at it, about what TV shows people watched across counties. And in blue states, there was a diverse range, sometimes, you know, premium kind of Netflix-y shows, sometimes network sitcoms. And then... In red states, it was like a culture, they were culturally underserved. Duck Dynasty was the only thing, in addition to Fox News, that they could be seen to be watching. And when I read about these Fred Perry black and yellow shirts that the Proud Boys wear, these kind of polo shirts with a yellow trim on them, that Fred Perry, by the way, has discontinued because of their association, and the boots, and at least in the 80s, this kind of punk white power music, which took Sometimes they'd go to Munich to play it or Berlin. What do you make of the idea that these men are kind of culturally underserved? I mean, I don't mean there's an obligation to take it up, but that there's not, I don't know, enough. I mean, God, I just have to guess about this because uh, I don't, I, I like, you know, couldn't throw a punch to save my life. But I mean, like some kind of codification of certain kinds of discipline, say, or, you know, a stint in the military. I mean, why do they have to turn to Jordan Peterson or the Proud Boys to tell them, make their beds and be protectors and we have a great brotherhood? I just, it seems like there might be a, a, a bigger variety of options. Among them, by the way, you know, a more neoclassical ideal that like, that reading, is not feminizing, that education is not feminizing, that there's a kind of masculine way of winning arguments at the seminar table or, you know, publishing great books that, you know, like gives you like some dick energy or whatever that's called (laughs) in itself. I mean, this is kind of a conversation about toxic masculinity, right? Yeah. um, When men are told by a society that they're not allowed to express emotions, that they're not supposed to care about other people, that they then have all of these human needs that are not being met because they're told that those needs are not legitimate for them. And so they have groups like this where people say, actually, you do have a place where you can belong and where we can bond and where I see you and accept you and will teach you how to to get all of those things that you want. I will mentor you. And groups like the Proud Boys provide that. Now, they provide them along with a toxic stew of other um, ideologies, and they provide a, um, a form of masculinity that's deeply embedded in patriarchy and in you know, believing that housewives are the ideal form of woman. Um, so it's obviously problematic, but it is addressing something or it's taking advantage of something that we as a a culture have not done a very good job of offering alternatives to toxic masculinity. And there are real problems um, for 
Americans across the spectrum, right? Um, the rise in deaths of despair, um, of suicides, this uh, lack of community, this need for belonging, being um, immersed in a digital world um, that is sort of built to take advantage of all of their vulnerabilities and to lead them increasingly towards toxic ideologies. So there are a lot of things that sort of over-determine the success of a group like the Proud Boys. Do you think there's any hope as these cults are, or the little groups, the Proud Boys are so arcane that one of the weird hopes that I have is that if you take the 2016 election, if the major takeaway from the 2016 election was that the overwhelming majority of voters went for a white woman that would seem to embody everything toxic masculinity despised as a kind of castrating mother. But that that's the real truth is that the majority favors a candidate, forget about Joe Biden, but favors a candidate like Hillary Clinton. And that these kind of head of household things and, and handmade role for women. And by the way, yes, I'm invoking the people of fate of praise um, that, <laughs> that Amy Coney Barrett belongs to or doesn't belong to, or said she says she might belong to these kind of cults are everywhere, but that because they're in the form of cults, that means that they don't have great space for themselves at the culture in the culture at large, where I think our, our grandfather's generation, um, or even Robert Mueller's generation, where every, all the men were walking around with purple hearts and all their wives were in Bible study groups. They didn't have to be as aggressive about it because it wasn't in its death throes. You could live your life as the head of household thinking, well, I'm so glad that, you know, my progressive, very, you know, outspoken wife does some charity work on the side, you know, and that <laughs> is how that's, you know, and my daughters went to college, you know, so that's proof that I can't be, um, you know, I'm not some kind of male chauvinist asshole. But if you could live your life like that, in, a, a, you know, and even our fathers, too, to some extent, then you don't need the cult. But now that we have the, again, overwhelming majority of Americans in 2016 going for the absolute demon of the right, Hillary Clinton, that suggests that this is becoming a more arcane practice that has to resort to weird semiotics and um, and also jailable offenses in order to express themselves. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for optimism. I think we've had precious little of it in the last four years. I mean, I, I do think, on the other hand, something that the last four years have reminded us is that history doesn't work in a in a progress slope where everything just gets better and better and better. Um, and that electoral politics may not always be the best metric for how much success we're having on this front, right? Because it's such a binary choice most of the time. Because if we just look at politics, not only did Hillary Clinton win the majority of the popular vote by a pretty healthy margin, but we have seen more and more women winning public office over these yes. last four years, right? It's the counter narrative right. to the Trump age is the way that women have organized one office, um, found more spaces where they can not only express their power, but tell their stories. I mean, the Me Too movement has been a particularly empowering movement for a lot of women. So all of that is to the good. Will there persist in a post-Trump era of culture, not just limited to these cults and these street gangs of patriarchy and white supremacy? Yes. And is there a movement developing a backlash against those things? 
that doesn't involve groups like the Proud Boys? Absolutely. And so how those fights over racial sensitivity training or anti-racism or feminism, how those play out, I mean, that those are going to be ongoing. So yes, I think we've seen lots of signs of progress. And yes, it is meaningful that these are fringe cults, um, but they are also fringe cults that have been empowered by the last four years and how they develop when they don't have somebody like Donald Trump as president. It could be that they just disappear. That is not traditionally the way that things have happened when radical groups find themselves suddenly more disempowered. Um, So, you know, it's one of those things where we'll just have to wait and see. The great Nicole Hemmer is a historian and podcaster. She's a scholar with the Obama Presidency Oral History Project at Columbia. Thanks so much for being here, Nicole. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Don't hold back. Rate and comment on your preferred podcast app and then find us on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and sign up. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. And please, come on, you'll be supporting our work. So crucial right now. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.